Okay, we're in Acts chapter 10. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to go through a book in the Bible and to learn and to study and to begin to get some of the context and uh, step back and look at the big picture. We've looked at the, in, the, uh, the beginning of the church, of course, the ascension of Christ, the birth of the church, the growing of the church, the organization of the early church in Jerusalem, the persecution that began uh, with Stephen stoning in chapter 7, and then the scattering of the disciples in chapter 8, and then the conversion of Paul in chapter 9, who, of course, was an apostle, in his own words, born out of due time, and going to be a very special vessel in the hands of God to help fulfill the next step of the Great Commission. Because remember, Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, moving out. So the first part of the book, looking at Jerusalem, and then the scattering takes them out past Judea, the Samaritans get saved, and now we're beginning to look to the uttermost parts of the world, or particularly to the Gentiles. And Paul is going to be the man uh, prepared and used for that uh, purpose. So, um, so Paul, for now, we've just seen his conversion, and uh, we know that he was let down in the basket from Jerusalem, and he, they, they sent him to Tarsus, which is where he's from. So for now, Paul's in Tarsus, now the camera swings back to Peter, and this is in Acts uh, 10. Remember, Peter was the one that the Lord said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16, and keys open doors. And Peter was instrumental in opening the door to the Jews in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, and now for the Gentiles in Acts uh, 10. So Peter's the, the, the one that's going to be used. Paul? I know, Peter does. Yes, Peter is a... It's, yeah, it's, there's Petra. Jesus said, upon this Petra, which is an immovable rock, I will build my church, and you are Petros, the smaller rock. Yes, but that's what it means. So let's jump in here. Uh, you can open uh, to Acts 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So if we look at a quick map here, we get our bearings. Of course, here's the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley leading up to the Sea of Galilee. Um, here's Jerusalem. And then if you go over to the coastal line here, you have Joppa, which we've mentioned already at the end of Acts 8. And then Caesarea. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful city. You can see the... Uh, uh, was built by Herod the first, and it's got an amphitheater, and we'll, we'll see the ruins there if we if we manage to do a trip there. And so our, our story focuses in on a Gentile, not only a Gentile but a soldier, not only a soldier but a centurion. You would have a legion of six thousand men; they will be divided into smaller companies, and a centurion would oversee uh, his group of of a um, hundred men in his his group. So this man is. Uh, Cornelius. He was a devout man, verse 2, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave his alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So, he was a Gentile. He wasn't a proselyte. In other words, he hadn't converted officially to Judaism. He definitely wasn't an atheist, but he definitely hadn't converted to Judaism. He was somewhere in the middle. He was a God-fearing man, and in fact, that was the the title that was given to someone who who feared God but wasn't yet a proselyte, hadn't converted to Judaism, but they called them God-fearers. And it says here he was a man who feared God and prayed to God always. And we could ask the question, well, I wonder what his prayer was. It doesn't tell us. It's not in the text what he prayed. But from the rest of the story, we can certainly make, I think, a fair assumption that he was perhaps praying, uh, he was seeking God, he was asking God for the truth, to know him. In the midst of all of the, the, the um, multiplicity of religions and worshipping of many gods and the Greeks and the Romans, here's a man who is praying always, and we can only imagine that he's praying that he could know the truth, 
he could say, oh God, would you reveal yourself to me? And of course, that's, uh, that's how the story unfolds. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says that God is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. So Cornelius in the Bible is an amazing example of God honoring the quiet, seeking heart of an unbeliever. Um, often we get asked this question, you'll get asked this question sometime for sure. Well, what about those who've never heard? What about the, the, the tribes in the jungle who've never heard about the name of Jesus? And you can say Cornelius, and you can show them Acts chapter 10. You can say God is faithful. God will hear the prayer of the heart. He will see the seeking heart and perhaps he will bring a missionary into that person's life just like he did with Cornelius when he sends Peter. So, verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, and by the way, on the Jewish clock, they count from 6 a.m. So the ninth hour would have been about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which was the hour for the evening prayers. So it seems as though he was even honoring the time of prayer for the on the on the Jewish uh, was recognized by the Jews. The ninth hour, he he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. So we're quickly introduced. So we're only a few verses into this chapter. Cornelius, a centurion, he's praying to God, and all of a sudden, he, there's an angel in in this vision who speaks to him, calls him by name, um, while he was praying. Later in the chapter, when he recounts this to Peter, he says, it tells us that he was fasting and praying. Wonderful things can happen when someone is so available, seeking God uh, like that. Peter also, by the way, is praying when he gets his vision later in the chapter. Verse 4, And when he observed him, he was afraid, and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have come up as for a memorial before God. When he observed him, the word here in the Greek is to steadfastly behold or to gaze upon, stretching your eyes, fixing your eyes upon. So imagine the angel appears and he is gazing or staring at him, observing him, really taking it in. And then he asks the question, what is it, Lord? He was, And the angel says, um, your prayers and your arms have come up as a memorial before God. God has heard your prayers. Incredible. And then he says, gives him some instructions. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa. And here we are here. So he's in Caesarea. So he says, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. You remember at the end of, when we last saw Peter, he was in this region of Joppa. Um, He was in the house of a man called Simon, who was a tanner, who worked with skinning animals, remember? So he says, send men to Joppa, and send for Peter. So um, he doesn't say, you go to Joppa, But he says, send for Peter. And that's interesting. Because as we'll see a bit later, when Peter comes, Cornelius has a whole room full of people, family and close friends gathered, and they're going to hear the gospel and get saved. So that's in God's purpose. God doesn't say, okay, you go solo and find Peter and he'll tell you. No, he says, bring him here. God has a wider purpose for not just only one Gentile to get saved, but uh, many here. And he says, verse 6, He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And this is where we get an indication of what he was praying for, right? Oh God, what would you have me to do? What is your will for my life? How can I find you? What What is my purpose? Whatever, those kinds of questions. And God answers and says, here's a man who will tell you what you should do. And, um, and, of course, what is he going to tell him to do? Is he going to tell him to be circumcised and keep the law and become a Jew? No. He's going to tell him to simply believe in Jesus. Wonderful. Um, so here's Peter. doesn't know about this yet. He's in the house of Simon the Tanner in, in Joppa on the seaside. Um, he's with that. That's already telling us that God is beginning to break down some walls in Peter's life as a strict Jew his whole life. Now he's with a man who would be considered 
ceremonially unclean because he's working with dead animals all the time. So there's some work already started in Peter's heart as a Jew. He will tell you what you must do. Verse 7 and 8. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had... Uh, there's a centurion there. When he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he takes two men, and one of them is a soldier, perhaps from his own uh, uh, group, and he sends them, it's about 30 miles south of Caesarea, about 30 miles south there. It's about two days' walk, so Cornelius is going to wait four days uh, for them to return. Um So, uh, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So Cornelius has sent his men. There's three of them. They're on their way to find Peter. Cornelius has told them uh, everything that's happened. And now they're wondering in their hearts, Did he really see a vision? Did he see an angel? Are we going on a wild goose chase? Are we going to meet this person? So they're on this travel for two days. And um, as they're getting closer, in verse 9 here, Peter goes up on the rooftop to pray. It's about the sixth hour. So this is 9, 9 o'clock the next morning, and typically 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock were the times of prayer. So this is the morning prayer. And verse 10, and he became became very hungry and wanted to eat. And while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So he's hungry, there's food being cooked, he's smelling it, he's beginning to nod off and he falls into a trance and actually has a very crucial God-given vision where God gives him such an important message for this time in the early church. And here is the vision. He's on the rooftop there, verse 11 and 12. And he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to earth. And in it there were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. So the idea here, there was some type of sheet bound at the four corners, something like that, that was lowered down out of heaven, opened up, and all of these different types of animals, the point being what the Jew would consider animals that were ceremonially clean and and those that were unclean. Because the Jews were told in Leviticus 11, among other places, that they would only eat that which is cloven-footed and that which chews the cud. Uh, Anything else would have been unclean. Snakes and camels and pigs and things like that they couldn't eat Um, also Leviticus 20 there gives that definition and part of the reason for that the end of uh, verse 25 of Leviticus 20 tells us that it was to those ceremonial ceremonial laws even the dietary laws were also to help the Jews be separate from other other people groups all those little things were to the end it says um Uh, I have separated you from the other people that you should be mine. So, he sees this vision and there's a voice that says, verse 13, um, came to him, rise Peter, kill and eat. Uh, It's one of our favorite verses. Rise, kill and eat. No, I'm just kidding. We like our barbecues. But anyway, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's response, look at it, verse 14, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. So, it seems here, as far as we can see, that in this vision, God is communicating. There's a few, couple of different messages here. One is that he's abolishing, it seems, these dietary laws. Uh, we can read in 1 Timothy 4.3, it says that false teachers 
teach to abstain from foods created to be received with thanksgiving. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. That's Timothy teaching that, or sorry, Paul to Timothy, but to the New Testament church saying, nothing is to be refused. These dietary laws that the Jews, they don't transfer over to the church. Those, those laws have been abolished now. Everything is, is uh, clean and, and, uh, uh, um, and good not to be refused. But also, more than just the foods, um, he is showing that Jew and Gentile were both to be accepted through the gospel in the church. It's much more than just the dietary laws. This animal's clean and this animal's not. He's, he's trying to prepare Peter for the fact that the, it's not only Jews to be in the church, but we're going to the Gentiles as well. And the important thing to grasp with this chapter 10 and chapter 11 particularly, but the whole transition of the book of Acts. It's hard for us as Gentiles to, to understand the, 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 um, you know, the, the cultural and religious barrier and separation that was between the Jews and the Gentiles was really strong. And it, it took some time. There's years that have gone by since Pentecost. And it's going to take time for Peter, particularly the apostles in Jerusalem, to begin to take that mental migration from just the Jews to the Gentiles. <clears throat> this is one of the reasons that Paul raises, uh, that God raises up Paul, who will ultimately be the one to, to go to the Gentiles. So um, he does a, a unique work to prepare him for that. Peter's going to open the door, but Paul is the one that's going to go through it. So Peter says, no, Lord, I'm a good Jew. If you're testing me, I'm going to pass that test. Oh, no, no, I know what you're doing. No, I'm not touching that food. Um, and we remember Peter, um, there's a few times Peter's had conflicts with the Lord when he, he said, oh, you won't go to the cross. Remember, he rebuked the Lord. You won't go to the cross. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan, remember? And of course, he denied him three times. And in this vision, we're going to see also three times he's going to say, not so, at least we assume that's the case. As we look here, verse 15, a voice spoke to him again the second time and said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was the heartbeat of the, of the vision. What God has cleansed, what God calls clean, you must not call unclean. Verse 16, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So here's Peter, he's on the rooftop, he's having the vision, the sheet is gathered up into heaven and he's... While he's wondering, it says, he's thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean the dietary laws are no longer valid? Or what is God trying to say? Right? At this point, he doesn't quite know what it means. And then while he's wondering, the visitors arrive. They're not knocking on the door, though. It says they, they stood at the gate. Because they understood that the Jewish law was that a Gentile could not enter the house of a Jew, or the Jew the house of a Gentile. So they stood at the gate. And they, um, uh, verse uh, 18 here, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Um, imagine, they're, 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 they're traveling. Do you think it's true? Do you think Cornelius, is there a guy called Peter here? I don't know. Let's see. They stand at the gate. Is there a guy called Peter, who's staying here with, you know, and they're waiting at the gate, and Peter's on the rooftop wondering, what is the vision? Peter, there's someone here. There's some Gentiles waiting at the gate. And God is preparing both of these. He gives Cornelius a vision to prepare the Gentile. He gives Peter a vision to prepare the Jew to help cross over these cultural barriers. Very, very important. So, verse... Um, Verse 19, yes, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. So he's thinking, saying, Lord, what is this vision? And the Lord says, there's three men. Verse 20, arise, go down, go to them, doubting nothing. In other words, believing me, 
for I have sent them. So with these words ringing in his ears, God is saying, I have sent them. He goes down from the rooftop, he looks to the gate, and he sees these three Gentiles, and he's beginning to put put it together. What I have called clean, do not call unclean. I have sent them, is going through his mind. He looks at the, the soldier and the two men at his, uh, his gate here. So this is verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? I'm the man. What do you want? I, I'm, I'm Peter. And they said, so they simply tell him what happened. Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear words from you. And hear words from you. Isn't that amazing? See, Peter has the gospel. He's a witness of the resurrection. He knows the answer. And, and we all, we want to hear words from you. And there's no question in Peter's mind what, what, what words he would want to share with anyone at this point. So they tell him, uh, he's realizing, again, not just a Gentile, but a Roman centurion. And um, verse 23, and then he invited them in and lodged them. So he's, he takes them in. Oh, and they're going to stay overnight. Now, you could easily read over this, but again... We have to remember, this was strictly forbidden to the Jew, that you would ever have Gentiles in your house. Um, You would be considered unclean because you had contact with Gentiles or had them in your house. Um, It was unlawful. Um, The Jews spoke of Gentiles as dogs and had no dealings with them. Remember the story in John 4? It says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And there was animosity from both sides. So Peter, though, is being prepared, and he lodges them. He puts them to, maybe they sleep on the roof or something, I don't know, but they sleep there that night. Imagine what's going through all of their minds that night. Imagine what's going through Peter's mind. He's rehearsing the vision. He's thinking, he's praying, I'm sure. Um, He's thinking about these Gentiles who have come. What does this all mean? I have to go to Cornelius' house the next day. So it's all preparing him for that. So... um, On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. In the next chapter, chapter 11, it tells us that there were six six men that went with him, six Jews, six Jewish believers, Christians, who who went with Peter. Um, These men are going to be key witnesses of what happened. So it's not just going to be Peter's word, what happened at Cornelius' house, but there's going to be six others uh, with him. And they go from Jerusalem, uh, sorry, they they go from Caesarea uh, to Joppa. Verse 24, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Oh, this is wonderful setting, isn't it? So four days have passed, and and he knows roughly, or it's two days there, two days back. So now he's, he's gathered his friends, his people who are close to him, his family. He believes with all his heart that he's going to get an answer to his question. He's going to get an answer of truth from this man sent by God. And of course, he wants to gather those that are close to him so that they could be there to hear this answer. So that's what he's done. So... As Peter's coming in, verse 25, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I am myself also just a man. Um, it's interesting that Peter's considered to be the first pope. Maybe we need to say no more. Uh, Peter definitely wouldn't have let him kiss his ring or kiss his hand or his feet or bow down to him. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, definitely Peter and Paul and even Mary, they wouldn't have want big cathedrals named after them either. But definitely he didn't want to give this undue honor or reverence. He didn't want to accept that. So he grabs him quickly, pulls him up and says, I'm just a man just like you. And as he talked with him, verse 27 uh, he went in and found many who had come together. So as he talks with him, and maybe there's just an exchange of a few words, 
um, yeah, you know, there, an angel appeared. You're going to tell it. You have a message for it. You have something to say to us. And as they go in, Peter comes into the main room and it's filled with people. It says, found many who had come together. So we don't know how many, but we know that there are his close friends and family. He was a Roman centurion, so no doubt he had a substantial house, probably a big room, many people there. And these seven Jews come into the house of a Gentile. And, oh, that would have been naturally awkward for all of them. But, but at least Cornelius and Peter definitely knew, well, God has put this together and we're just, we're just following his lead. Um, so, so Peter is really seeing this is, this is a divine appointment. God has set this stage for an incredible purpose. Now, just a quick side question. You remember in Acts chapter 8 that Philip, the evangelist, remember he met the Ethiopian, then he went to, uh, he went to, ended up in Caesarea. And actually Philip is still in Caesarea. We're going to see later in the book of Acts. For, for years, I forget how many, something like 20 years or something, Philip is, is in Caesarea. So why didn't the Lord just say to Cornelius, I've got a guy in Caesarea, his name's Philip. Go knock on his door, go send for him. Why did he send all the way to Joppa for Peter? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, one reason we could say it was about the keys, God had ordained it that it was Peter that would would have the keys, open those doors. It was Peter, instrumental as the spokesman, as the, as the leading uh, man in those people groups. Um, but also, remember, Philip was a deacon, and now he was an evangelist living in Caesarea, but Peter, Galatians 3.9, was one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, one of the leaders, one of the apostles, one who had seen the resurrected Lord. So it's quite a different thing if Philip says, oh, I, you know, I've led some Gentiles to the Lord, but this is Peter. He has something to say. Well, when he when he goes back with his testimony to Jerusalem, um, he has more of a, you know, people are going to hear hear his testimony. Um, even Peter, we'll see in chapter eleven. Even he comes up against a little resistance when he's telling them what's happened initially, um, but but they do hear him. Verse twenty eight. And then he said to them, first thing that comes into his mind as he walks into that room, what does he say? You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. In other words, a Gentile. No Jew would ever lodge with a Gentile. You would never eat food that was cooked by a Gentile. You would never eat food that was cooked in the utensil or the pan that belonged to a Gentile. Um, You would never uh, drink milk that had been drawn by a Gentile. There, were, there was complete separation. Um, any article that had been in the hands of a Gentile and then handled by you, and this was for the strict Orthodox Jew, would be considered unclean, and therefore you would be considered unclean. You'd have to go through certain rituals uh, again. Uh, the Pharisees, as they would walk along the streets, they would often hold their garments so tightly around them because if their garments touched a Gentile, they would consider themselves unclean. That's how strict and narrow they were in their thinking. So the first thing Peter says, you know how unlawful this is that I would even be here. Look what he says next. But God has shown me. And see, we see here that Peter is beginning to get the, the point of the vision and the message. Now, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Is that what it says? Any man? Yeah. Any man, right? The vision was with animals, but Peter says, God has shown me I shouldn't call any man common or unclean. So Peter's getting the idea. Verse 29, Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Well, they had a good night's sleep first, but anyway. (laughs) I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? So here I am. I, 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 I heard the, the people that you sent. I also know this is from God, and here I am, and let's get on with it. Why, why am I here? So Cornelius, now in front of everyone, simply explains what, what, what happened. We'll read through those verses, 30. Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. 
At the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon uh, Tanner by the sea. No doubt Simon the Tanner was sitting there as one of the guys listening. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear the things commanded you by God. So he gone to the house of Simon and Tanner, uh, uh, taken Peter and six other men back with him, and now he's in Cornelius' house, and Cornelius explains what's, what happened. He says, listen, let me just tell you what happened. I know it sounds crazy too. But I just had this vision. I'm just telling you exactly what happened. And I love this phrase at the end. We are present before God to hear the things commanded of you. Verse 33. What an incredible setting. Peter walks in and it says, These people, we are here to hear what you've got to say, believing it's from the Lord. Verse 34. And then Peter opened his mouth. This famous verse here. The, 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 the key to his message. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So this is what he says. It's an incredible opening statement. Okay, here I am. Cornelius says, okay, we're here to hear what you've got to say. What have you got to say? And this is the opening. I perceive that God shows no partiality. And who's he speaking to? A room full of Gentiles and the Jews that are with him. It's a very potent statement in that cultural conflict. And where it says, I perceive here, could be translated that I am beginning to see, or beginning to perceive. Uh, there's a personal dawning that's happening. Peter's not all the way there yet, but, but uh, he says, I'm, I'm beginning to see, I'm beginning, the fog is clearing. I'm beginning to see that there is no partiality with God. And of course, Paul clearly understood this, just to quote Romans 3.29, Paul says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. So Paul, of course, clearly uh, understood this to, you know, by the time he wrote Romans. Verse 35, he goes on to say, But in every nation, oh, these are amazing words for him to say, in every nation, Every Gentile nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. In other words, the Gentile, it was commonly understood up until this point, that if a Gentile wanted to become a follower of Christ the Messiah, they would have to convert to Judaism. They would have to take on the elements of the... of the Because Jesus was a Jew, the first believers were Jews, the apostles were Jews. It all happened in the context of Judaism. And Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old. So they understood if you want to become a Christian or a follower of Yeshua, Mashiach, the Jesus the Messiah, you convert or you take on the elements of Judaism. But, but uh, it's going to be, by, by the time Acts 15 comes, it's going to be established that no, a Gentile does not have to keep the law or be circumcised to be a follower of, of Christ. So here, Peter's eyes now being open to this truth. Every nation. Remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John 4? There's two phrases in that passage. One is, he says to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. And at the end of that story, when all of the Samaritans are getting saved, remember they're like half-breeds, half-Jew and Gentile, this also shunned by the Jews. And when all those Samaritans are getting saved and believing on Jesus, they said, oh, now we know that, that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So in that one passage, John 4, it says two things. Salvation is of the Jews, but Jesus is the Savior of all. Right? It doesn't say salvation is for the Jews exclusively, but it's of the Jews. God brought it through, through the Jews, particularly through Jesus. So, 
Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, and now Peter's continuing to preach, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. Um, Perhaps to this point, now this is the first time that the name Jesus has been mentioned, right? We might take that for granted, that Cornelius knew, oh, Peter's coming with with the new Christian message about Jesus. No, Cornelius didn't know that. Cornelius is just seeking God. And he, he says, oh God, I want to know the truth. And he says, I'll send a man who knows the truth, and Peter's going to bring the gospel according to Jesus, of course. But this is the first time Jesus' name is mentioned. So they're all gathered, and Peter says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So Cornelius has had some measure of light that he has responded to. He's, he has great uh, faith and honor towards the God of the Jews, but now he's going to be brought into the full light, the full revelation of the gospel. God now sent the Messiah to bring peace to all. Verse 37, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. In other words, you've all heard about Jesus. You know the claims. I mean, you haven't been hiding in a corner. Everyone has heard that. You know about that. And now he simply opens the gospel story to them. Verse 38. He says, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Notice he says, How God anointed Jesus. Now, Of course, Jesus was the anointed one. That's one of the the ideas of the Messiah, the anointed one. But we know that when he was 30, which was the age a priest would enter his public ministry, when Jesus was 30, he entered his public ministry. That's when John the Baptist baptized him. The Holy Spirit descended upon him and anointed him for the beginning of his three-year public ministry, which is why right after that he went into the synagogue in Nazareth He found Isaiah 61 and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel. So Peter says here, You know Jesus of Nazareth, he was anointed by God. God was with him. Verse 39, We are witnesses of all these things which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So Peter says, You may have heard about this, but you know what? We were witnesses of this. We were his, we were with him. We were his disciples. We saw his public ministry and we even saw him crucified on the cross. Verse 40. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So first he says, we were witnesses of his public ministry and his death, but you know what? We were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. We ate with him, we drank with him. For those 40 days between the Passover and, uh, and first fruits and Pentecost, when he was teaching us, he was among us. 1 Corinthians 15 gives the order of those who saw him and says that 500 saw him at one time. So again, here we see Acts, the idea of Acts 1.8. When, when you, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses unto me. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. And here is Peter being a witness unto Christ to these Gentiles. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead commanded us to preach, and of course, again, that's what Peter's doing right here. Verse 43, and this is the key, the key uh, to, the, uh, to the message. This is the bringing now, okay, this is what Christ did. He, he, he was slain on the cross, he was buried, he resurrected. That's, that's what Christ did. If you think of John 3.16, and split it into two. There's God's part, and there's man's part. Both of them are the key parts of the gospel. The first is, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The second part is, whoever believes. 
So he's given the first part, what Jesus did, and here's the second part of the gospel. Now just believe. So this is verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So here's the, the invitation word of the gospel. Remember the, the vision that came to Cornelius? He will tell you what you must do. Send for Peter, he'll come and he'll tell you what you must do. And he tells him, believe. That's it. That's the only verb in this message and the only condition for someone's salvation just to believe. You'll notice that when Peter preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem, remember in Acts 2 and 3, particularly in Acts chapter 2, he doesn't just say believe, there's another word, you remember? He tells them that they must repent, which means to change the mind. Because he's speaking to that generation of Jews who had rejected the Messiah and crucified him, and therefore they also had to change their mind that Jesus was the Messiah. He doesn't say that to these Gentiles. He just says you have to believe. You just have to believe. And if you believe, you'll receive forgiveness. And at this point in the message, look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So, there isn't, Peter doesn't say, okay, you must believe in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now if there's anyone here who's never believed, doesn't give an altar call. Raise your hand if you want to believe in Jesus, and we, we do that sometimes, and that's fine. But the beauty is this. Oh, in the quiet privacy of someone's heart, they can be born again in a moment by just believing. As soon as Peter gets to this one word, if you believe, it says when he gets to that word, they were so ready and prepared, they believed. And when they believed the Holy Spirit, it says there came upon them. Amazing principle. And in fact, when Peter retells this story in the next chapter, he says, as I began to speak. So Peter probably thought, okay, this is going to be a long message. <laughs> but he didn't get very far. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Verse 45. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, remember it was six other men, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And this was the desired effect. This is why God set the stage this way. This is why God had it that Peter would go and take six other Jews with him. And it says when this happened, the Jews that were with him were astonished. They were amazed. This was the desired effect. Something amazing and most, more importantly, something undeniable was happening. Because these Jews that went with Peter, most probably, were, were ones who had been in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Who had been gathering with the, with the 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And now the same thing that happened to those Jews who were gathered, who were waiting, now happens to these Gentiles. We could say, loosely, we could say this was almost like a Gentile Pentecost. Uh, it happened to the Jews, chapter 2. It happened to the Samaritans, chapter 8. And now it happens to the Gentiles here in chapter 10. Verse 46, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Remember, tongues being languages, known languages. And um, in 1 Corinthians... Maybe I didn't put that down, but I think it's 1 Corinthians 1, 22, I think it is. It says um, that the Jews seek a sign. The, the sign of languages in Acts 2 and even here in Acts 10 was a sign for the Jew so that they would know, oh, this is, this, this is accompanied with something miraculous. This is from the Lord. So that the Jews could leave this event knowing the same thing that happened to us when we received the Holy Spirit, it was, an, it was accompanied with a visual and even an audible sound. Rushing wind and, and, and tongues of fire and then the miracle of the languages. And we see the same thing happened here. The evidence of them being, being filled with the Holy Spirit was the languages that were spoken. 
um, that that needs a qualifier. That doesn't mean that that's the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit today. Um, we know that uh, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Um, but in this particular case, echoing Acts chapter 2, uh, this was the conclusion that the Jews could make. Um, it's a powerful witness to Peter and to all. And God really had to make this point. Why? Again, go back to that cultural barrier. The Jews had no dealings with the Gentiles. The Jews, in terms, particularly in terms of their faith and religion, thought of themselves as, as better than, than, uh, than, other, than the Jews, than the Gentiles, sorry. Um, Peter would have believed that, uh, believed that also. God had to, to work in his heart. Verse 47. Then Peter answered. What is he answering? He's answering that, the situation. Peter's answering the situation. What is happening? Because there's questions in every heart and mind. What, what is happening? Everyone's saying. So he says, Peter answered, though no one audibly asked the question. And he said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, important to make a quick note on baptism, as I'm sure we understand. Water baptism is an outward symbolic act of something that has already happened in someone's life. There are many misconceptions about baptism. Uh, I used to, I was pastoring a Chinese church for years and in the Chinese Christian community, um, they believe that when someone really becomes a Christian, it's when you get baptized. That, that, that commitment, okay, now I'm going to become a Christian and they, they think that getting baptized is what accompanies that heart decision. And we had to teach and teach and reteach it and reteach it and, it, and even some struggled to get that concept in their mind that, that, that was the moment. Now I'm a Christian. We had to say, no, you're a Christian. The moment you put your faith in Christ, the Bible teaches, then you are baptized. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.4 says there is one baptism, one faith, one Lord. That one baptism, the most important baptism, is the spiritual baptism. It's the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are spiritually baptized or unified with Him. The water baptism, again, is just an outward symbolic act showing that this has already happened in your life. It might have happened 10 years before, hopefully you don't wait that long, or one year before, or in this case, it happened on the same day. They're going to baptize them right on this day. I remember there was a guy, Mr. Um, oh, I forget his name. Mr. Ning, I think his name was. Chinese man in the in the church, very, very well-to-do, uh, well-educated Chinese man. His wife was a believer in the church, and he was coming to the church for many months. And he wasn't a believer, and everyone knew it. And that was that's fine in the in the Chinese culture. They're just waiting and praying for him. And then we had a baptism, and he turns up with his towel. Did I ever tell you this story? He turns up with his towel, white t-shirt, and his shorts, and we're at the pool. There's a couple of hundred people. And he says, this is the day. And I'm like, what, what day, Mr. Ning? And he's like, this is the day I'm going to get baptized. And I said, well, you understand that before you get water baptized, you, you need to put your faith in Christ and become a I know, this is the day. And I said, oh, you want to accept Christ? And he said, yes. So we, the side of the pool there, we led him to the Lord and we had a few it's explaining things to him and with the others he, he got beautifully baptized so it could be years, years after you're saved or it could be even in the same day or in Mr. Ning's case about half an hour before but the most important thing is the spiritual baptism not the water baptism it's possible for me to only have the spiritual baptism and never get water baptized and I go to heaven obviously right Equally, it's possible for me to get water baptized and never truly be saved, and I'm not going to heaven based on that. It means nothing in itself. But the ideal is when I'm saved, I understand it, and this serves as a beautiful testimony that I am a Christian, I understand that, I'm not ashamed of my faith, 
and I'm going to get baptized. And we're going to have a baptism in the, in the year with some people in the church. Yes? It's a declaration. It's a glorious declaration. And when you have a baptism, and I'm sure you, if we've been baptized or seen a baptism, you understand why God instituted it. It wasn't our idea. It was his idea. Because he knows that um, it is something that can help seal uh, our commitment and our decision in our own hearts, and it serves as a very powerful testimony. Um, it's a message in itself. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't need too many words to accompany it. It's, it's a very very powerful uh, message. Um, and of course, today, you know, say, "Oh, I was baptized when I was a baby," but we, we gently address that and say, "Well, I was baptized when I was a baby, as well. I was christened in the church, or whatever." But speaking, baptism is for an adult believer. It wasn't your parents' decision. Your decision as an adult um, that you that you uh, that you you believed in Christ and you're choosing to get baptized, and that happens when you're an adult. So we always say, even if you were christened or baptized as a baby, now as a true believer in Christ, you should get baptized properly, full immersion as as an adult. That's what we encourage. So. And that's uh, so. Can anyone forbid them that they should get baptized? Um, what Peter's saying here is he's recognizing that they are they have been spiritually baptized, which is that they've received the Holy Spirit and they're now members of the body of Christ. And now he's saying, therefore, they should be water baptized. In verse forty-eight, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. And oh, what a glorious baptism that would have been. Uh, perhaps they would have gone right down to the sea or to the nearest river or whatever, but they would have beautiful... These Jews baptizing these first Gentile converts, how glorious that would have been, and realizing we are brothers, we are in the same body, we are the same family, the same Lord, baptized together. And this was the mystery that Paul brought out in Ephesians 3 and other places in the epistles of the unity of the body, the mystery that the two have been made one in the body. And then those last words, then they asked him to stay a few days. Imagine those few days. The questions, the discussions, the prayers together, the rejoicing together, uh, the testimonies would have been wonderful. So that brings us to the end of chapter 10, which is the third in three amazing um, conversions. Chapter 8, we had the Ethiopian. What an incredible conversion. Chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus. And now chapter 10, Cornelius, uh, considered to be the first Gentile uh, convert. Uh, Just a quick note to prepare us for chapter 11, which we'll do uh, in the new year. Um, Now Peter is going to go... They hear about this in Jerusalem. He has to go back to Jerusalem and explain what happens. And he he walks through the whole testimony with them. It's accepted in Jerusalem. And now the stage is set for the gospel to really start going out to the Gentiles. And of course, uh, come chapter 13, Paul is going to be the one uh, to do that. All right, so Father, we thank you tonight for uh, this this, uh, walking through this chapter together. And uh, thank you for opening these verses and this chapter to us and giving us understanding. Bless each one listening online and uh, increase our faith and help us in our relationship with you, we pray. And bless this to our hearts and minds and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.